Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tyson. I'm um, one of the elders in training across the City Light Churches. And it, um, yeah, it's really my pleasure to be able to come tonight and share a word with you. Um, if you're uh, new here or if you haven't been in a little while, we are... Um, Towards the end of a series we've been doing um, across um, Glenelg and North Adelaide on the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, um, I think we're at least three quarters, if not further than that, through it. So we've got a few more weeks after this and then we're moving on to different things. Um, I would just ask if you could be a bit gracious with me tonight as well. I've just, I'm starting to come down with a bit of a throaty thing. So if I need to kind of duck and get a drink of water semi-regularly, like, I apologise for that. So tonight we're going to get into Isaiah chapter 48. Um, in a little bit, but um, just to give a bit of, um, I guess to catch you up, um, the last few weeks and the last seven chapters of Isaiah, so Isaiah 40 to 47, what we've been learning about is um, God's plan to save and deliver his people from uh, the captivity that they were in under this Babylonian empire. You know, his people, the Israelites, they um, had been struggling, they'd been kind of suffering for a time as Babylonian captives. Um, But hope was again on the horizon um, as God through Isaiah was revealing to them these plans that he had to deliver them back to their promised land and out of um, Babylonian captivity. Uh, Chapters 40 through 47 of Isaiah, um, if you remember them, they're really saturated in the love that God has for his people, this, um, you know, where he's expressing his heart and his desire for them to turn to him and to look to him and for them to trust him again. But despite all this, we get some pretty strong inklings um, that this might not be the happily ever after we're hoping for. You know, it's during this time that they were in exile, again, um, rather than seeing the foolishness of their disobedience and and, um, coming back to God, the Israelites or the Jews, um, their love had grown cold toward the Lord and their affections uh, their worship and their hearts were being given to man-made idols, you know, to even the gods that the Babylonians had uh, who were enslaving them. So we're going to head into Isaiah chapter 48 tonight. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to that because we're going to spend a little bit of time in there, um, which kind of brings to conclusion uh, this section of the book where for seven chapters, God's really poured his heart out to his people. He's um, in a sense, been explaining himself, and he's offered them literally uh, everything that they mistakenly think that their idols will give them. Isaiah, oh, sorry, chapter 48 is in some ways a bit of a turning point in this narrative, and it's a bit of a turning point in history because what we're seeing now is it's becoming clearer and clearer that God's plans go far beyond just the Israelites and Jews and that the sin and the disobedience of humanity could not and will not stop God achieving his purpose in this world. So I'd love to pray for us, and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you uh, that we can come here tonight, that we can uh, gather together as your people, that we can uh, enjoy your presence and being in fellowship with each other. And Lord, we thank you for this, um, this book, this um, incredible Uh, witness to your judgment and your hope that we've been spending um, this last 13 or so weeks in. And 
Father, we just pray that as we open your word tonight, that your spirit would move in us, that you would open our eyes to see you clearly, Lord, that you would um, lead us to yourself, that wherever we're at tonight, that you would help us to bring that to the cross, Lord, that you would help us to know who we are in you, Lord, uh, that you would fill our minds and our hearts with your presence and that you would just help us to trust in you and come to know you more deeply and more fully tonight. So we ask that you would move amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Isaiah 48, we'll start with um, looking at verses 1 to 5. It reads, and this is the ESV. Listen to this, house of Jacob. Those who are called by the name Israel and have descended from Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and declare the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness, For they are named after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. His name is the Lord of armies. I declared the past events long ago. They came out of my mouth. I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted and they occurred. Because I know that you are stubborn and your neck is iron and your forehead bronze. Therefore I declared to you long ago. I announced it to you before it occurred. So you could not claim my idol caused them. My carved image and cast idol control them. We'll stop there. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you've worked really hard at something, some sort of project or um, something you've just been putting a lot of time and effort into, uh, and then someone else comes in and just kind of takes credit for it. You know, it can be disappointing enough in life uh, to just not get any acknowledgement or credit for the work you put into things, but... If someone else comes in and they take credit for your efforts, for your work, man, that, that can be like a real kick in the guts, can't it? And I think most people, I think we would all agree that for someone to do that, to step in and, and take credit for someone else's work, is, is, it's a pretty despicable thing to do. It's a dog move. And this is precisely what the Israelites were doing here to God. You know, they were taking his promises, they were taking his deliverance, they were taking his plans and saying that it is their idols, that it is other things that were doing these great things. You know, it was other gods, it was other powers, it was themselves that have achieved those things. Like verse 5 says, my idol caused them, my carved image and cast idol control them. But you know, God does not like to be taken for granted. Because if we jump ahead to verse 11, Uh, where we're going to end up a little bit later, it says, my glory I will not give to another. That's God speaking. John Piper tells this story. Suppose you ask a man, for example, the president of a company, who are the most important people in your life? And he says, maybe my mum, my best mate Steve, and, I don't know, Kathy, the vice president for marketing. And then you respond to him, but what about your wife? And he says, oh, you know, I just assume that, you know, sure, she goes without saying. It might be that a few of us would assume that it's his abounding affection for his wife that kept her from coming to mind. But probably most of us, especially his wife, I think, would assume the opposite. That namely, she didn't come to mind because she's not of paramount importance in his mind. She goes without saying because she goes without significance to him. And one of the things we could probably be pretty sure about is that she does not like it. 
No, she wouldn't say, I feel so loved um, and honoured because my husband never thinks to mention me among his top priorities. I'm like the air he breathes, he never gives me a thought. More realistically, I think she would be thinking that if she doesn't come to mind for him to talk about, then maybe she isn't really important to him. And that if he has this perspective that she is honoured by being taken for granted, then I think he's about to learn a very hard lesson. You know, it is possible to take important things for granted, isn't it? Like oxygen. Although if you know anyone who suffers from emphysema, then you might have a renewed appreciation for that as well. But you know, nothing is being taken for granted. Sorry, nothing is honoured by being taken for granted. It's no tribute to the importance of anything in our hearts when we say, you know, oh, we just assume that. Because to be assumed might make a person feel indispensable, but it doesn't make a person feel treasured. And the Bible often uses the symbolism of God's relationship to his people like that of a bride and a groom. And we see throughout history that the bride, being God's people, take the groom's love for granted and they're repeatedly unfaithful uh, to the groom who waits with eager longing for the bride to come back to him, to come to him. I wonder how often we live our lives without giving God the honour that is rightfully his for all that he is and he has done. Every breath, every laugh, every meal, every time that we're warm in bed when it's cold outside, every friendship, every scientific discovery, every baby born, every dollar that we have in the bank, every day we go to work or uni, even the ones that are pretty tough, every time we meet together to sing and pray, uh, every time we open his word, it's very easy to take God's goodness for granted or kind of credit our achievements, our comfort, our joy and our satisfaction to another, to an idol or to ourselves. But God doesn't like being taken for granted. You see, the Israelites, the Jews, had the opportunity and the honour, in a sense, for for centuries to be a light to the nations. You know, they were supposed to be a beacon of God's truth and his goodness to the ancient world. But over and over and over again, they took him for granted. They credited his work and his goodness to their idols. And again and again, they became a broken and a dim reflection of what the kingdom of God should look like. But you know, God's plans and his promises cannot be ruined by the sin and the disobedience of people. In fact, what we're going to start to see as we read on is that God is not surprised or left scratching his head by anything. As we read on, we start to get a taste and see a glimpse of that God's plans go deeper than Israel or you or me have the ability to destroy. So let's keep reading in verses 6 to 8. You have heard it. Observe it all. Will you not acknowledge it? From now on, I will announce new things to you, hidden things that you have not known. They have been created now and not long ago. You have not heard of them before today, so you could not claim I already knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. For a long time, your ears have not been open. 
For I knew that you were very treacherous and were known as a rebel from birth. So new things are coming. You know, Israel's time or Judah's time as God's vessel and unique people group on earth will soon reach its culmination, its climax. God has planned new and hidden things, new and hidden from Israel at the time. The Israelites were claiming that the former things that had happened were done by their idols. So God was about to sweep the rug out from under them in ways that they could not possibly predict. And they, and they could not possibly ta- try to take his glory for. And as we continue through the last few chapters of Isaiah over the next few weeks, uh, we see that clearly this new thing is the coming Messiah and Saviour, Jesus. But see, the Israelites had become very narrow-minded in, in the way they thought God could and would work. God had planned and eventually did deliver them from Babylon through this King Cyrus, who was a Persian and not a Jew, and I know Don unpacked that quite a bit last week. But they couldn't fathom or accept this idea of God using a pagan king, a non-Jewish king, to save them from captivity. You know, national pride and idolatry had overwhelmed them and their understanding and blinded their ability to see that God is the Lord and sovereign over all. In a similar way, 600 years later, uh, they again couldn't fathom or even stomach the idea that this Messiah, uh, this sent one, was a servant king who hangs out with the scum of society and gets killed a criminal's death on a Roman cross. You know, they were expecting, they were looking forward to a war hero, someone to liberate them, um, someone to lead the Jews back to becoming a world power. But then there's Jesus, you know, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, as Corinthians tells us. But what I want to do for a second is just pause and push into this a little bit deeper. Because I actually think that this is important for us. You know, God seems to work in ways that at the time can seem new and different and certainly unexpected to us and to his people. So let me ask, how much room do you allow in your thinking, in your prayer, in your daily routine and in your relationships for God to move in ways that for you might be new and unexpected and even perhaps uncomfortable? It's really easy, especially when you've been around church for a little while and you've been around Christians for a little while. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Uh, to become familiar with the way things run, to get used to prayer, to get used to preaching and singing, and just the general routine with work and study and family time and time hanging out with mates. But then this mindset, this, you know, this normalization, this comfortable space can kind of transition into how we see God and his involvement in our lives and in our world today as well. I'm definitely not meaning to rag on routine because um, I understand routine can be really useful. I've discovered this having young children. The routine is important. Uh, but let me just remind us that the book of Acts is still going in a sense, isn't it? You know, God is still alive and at work in our world today, here and around us in incredible ways, and he doesn't like to be taken for granted, but he also is far bigger and far more untamed than our comfort zones would allow, and our belief sometimes would convince us that we've got God completely figured out. You know, in John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus that the Spirit of God is like the wind and it blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, you see its effects, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. 
If you've got a bit of a, like a maths brain or you think of yourself as very you know, rational or formulaic in the way you kind of live and think, then this can be a bit of a trigger or a bit of something a bit hard to stomach about the nature of God. Because at one level, you know, surely your mind tells you that there is a formula to solve every problem. Surely there is a way to understand God enough that if I do A, then he must do B for me. Or if I believe X, then Y and Z, Z must result. And God's promises are absolutely to be trusted. His character and his nature are unchanging and eternal. We can go to the bank on these things, but we need only look to Scripture to see that he works in ways that can actually seem foolish in the world's eyes. You know, he works in ways that sometimes seem strange or certainly might make us uncomfortable. He calls us to follow him against the flow of culture and also sometimes against the flow of normalcy and the familiarity that our lives can settle into. What I'm saying is we we just need to be careful we aren't recreating God in our own image, one that we can control, one that we can make fit into what's comfortable for us with no room for risk, uh, with no room for the wind of the Spirit to move us or move in ways that might make us uncomfortable or seem strange in the moment because God is actually calling us to trust in Him. And I pray that we would not be like the hard-hearted and short-sighted Israelites who thought they had God all figured out but were blinded to what He was doing right in front of them. As we continue in Isaiah 48, we're going to come to what probably, what I think is one of the most important and profound passages, not just in Isaiah, but maybe the entire Bible. Before we go there, I just want to tell you guys a quick story from my life. I still remember being a first year uni student, which is a bit um, crazy to think was over 10 years ago now. And um, one of my fairly vivid memories from our first year uni was doing a placement in the intensive care unit at Flinders Med. Um, and this really friendly neurosurgeon came up to me and asked if I'd like to scrub in and observe him uh, doing a procedure on a guy who had suffered a really severe head injury. I remember freaking out and getting a bit excited and um, I was really nervous because I, for starters I wasn't convinced this neurosurgeon um, actually realised I was just a first year paramedic student um, doing a one day placement in the hospital uh, and I remember he even said to me that I should try and think of some intelligent questions to ask him, and that did not help my nerves at the time. And I remember standing over his shoulder, and I was watching him perform this surgery on this patient. I had literally almost no idea what the heck was going on, even he, as he was explaining it to me. Um, I mean, it, it made some strange degree of sense to me that by drilling into this guy's skull, it was actually helping him, um, actually for his benefit, but beyond... Uh, trusting that he knew what he was doing, uh, I had hardly any comprehension or understanding of what was happening in front of me. In case you're wondering, I actually managed to come up with a question um, to do with cerebrospinal fluid, which you might have heard of. I'd learnt about it like a week before I did this placement. Um, And again, I had no idea what was going on, but I asked it to him and he turns to me and he goes, that was a really good question. And I was like, yes! (laughs) I don't even remember what his answer was. Anyways, over the years, I studied, as I studied at uni and as I, I began work and I studied more as an intern paramedic and now I've been working for eight years, I kind of reflected on that day um, and it began to make more and more sense to me uh, what was going on, you know, why he did that procedure on that patient. I mean, don't get me wrong, neurosurgery is not a topic I know anything about. Please don't ask me anything about it. Um, but for me, this example 
illustrates the way that you know, I now have more confidence in, I, I now see the value in, and I trust in much of what back then I had a much more blinder uh, hope and confidence in would be a good thing. You see, as we start to understand the deeper layers and the truths foundational to them and how they work, our confidence increases, doesn't it? And the same thing is true for relationships. As we get to know someone deeper and more fully, it helps us to understand to know their character, why they do what they do, uh, whether they're trustworthy, what they are like, what they love, what they hate, what they struggle with, and what breaks their heart. You know, the Bible's obviously full of stories and passages that help us get an idea of the character of God. And where we're going now is one of those passages that helps us to um, understand God, in his char- God and his character in a way that is deeper than we, we often think, hear or talk about. I'm not saying we need to know everything about God to be able to trust or put our hope in him. That's not going to happen this side of eternity, obviously. Um, and there's always going to be mystery and the need to take him at his word. But as we seek Jesus, as we uh, seek to know the heart and the will of God, this is one of those realities of God's nature that we shouldn't and, and, and just can't overlook. And I think across the board in the church today, we're very good at overlooking it and maybe just ignoring it altogether. I know this is a really long preface to actually reading the passage, but one last thing I just want to um, ask you guys before we turn to this next uh, section is considering this question. I wonder how often we do think about this. You know, why did God do any of this? Why does God continually choose to love are people who treat him like trash. You know, who rather than delight in his love for them, time and time again, turn away from him. You know, they run to other gods, they go to other comforts, to other idols, to other ways of living. Why doesn't God just give up on his people? Why is God so good to us? Why did God send his son Jesus to us 600 years after this to be rejected, to be treated like a criminal and to be crucified? Do you ever ask that question? Why? Well, if in your mind you're thinking it's because he loves us, then yes, <laughs> you're right. He, he does love us and he desires so deeply to have a relationship with us that he would wash away our sins, past, present and future, completely and forever by means of Christ's death on the cross. But there is an even deeper truth to this reality that we don't talk about very often. And this next three verses of Isaiah 48 help us to see this truth. And when we get it, when we understand this, I think it changes everything. You know, I think it helps us to move into a deeper understanding, a deeper appreciation and a confidence in our God and King that is more than just a concept and can be incredibly helpful uh, to us in our faith, in our identity, in our freedom and in our joy in life. So here we go, let's read Isaiah 48, 9 to 11. It says, I will delay my anger for the sake of my name. This is God speaking through Isaiah. And I will restrain myself for your benefit and for my praise, so that you will not be destroyed. Look, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. I will act for my sake, indeed my own, for how can I be defiled? I will not give my glory to another. So here we have God explicitly saying that he will do 
what he will do, not just for our benefit, but primarily for his own glory, for his own name, and for his praise. You know, we often think that it's his love for us that is his main concern. Like he is kind of lonely in heaven and he's a bit obsessed with us and he needs us and he kind of cares only about us. And you know what? Everything in our culture today is kind of reinforcing that, isn't it? You know, that we are of supreme importance, that um, in a sense the world revolves around us and that we deserve it and you know, others in, in some ways they just really exist to, for my comfort and my, to, to serve my needs. And that kind of way of thinking has, has, I think, certainly trickled into church culture, into, into our theology, our understanding of who God is over the years, where we've taken this incredible love that God does have for us, don't get me wrong, but we've missed that there is something actually even deeper and, and more incredible beneath that, which we really need to see if we're going to have a right picture of who God is and if, who we are in light of that. And this is what Isaiah is saying here, that the foundation of God's love for us is actually in his commitment and his passion for himself and for his own glory. I know this sounds really theological and vague, and if you're like me when you hear this kind of stuff, you know, your eyes kind of glaze over a little bit and you, there's kind of crickets and tumbleweeds going through. So what I want to do is just help us put it into a framework and help us to understand this. And so what, I want to, what I'm going to do is give us an example of someone that we all have probably heard of uh, and show us how this works and why this is important. King David, so David and Goliath. King David. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. We always think of King David as a pretty incredible guy, don't we? You know, he's a guy that led his people in great victories. He had this amazing relationship and faith in the Lord. Um, but remember that this man after God's own heart was also an adulterer. He was a murderer. If you don't believe me, in 2 Samuel 11, we find out that he slept with another man's wife, Bathsheba. And he sent her husband Uriah uh, to his certain death in battle as a way of trying to cover up his sin. Jeepers, I mean... I'm sure we've all made mistakes in our lives and we've done stuff that we're not super proud of, but adultery and murder is pretty extreme even by today's standards. And, um, but you know, like God being perfectly just and righteous, I guess surely he deals harshly with David and uh, he gets his just punishment, doesn't he? No, he doesn't. In 2 Samuel 12, the prophet Nathan rebukes David. And then in verse 13, so 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, it says as clear as day, it's right there, the Lord has put away or has passed over uh, your sin and you shall not die. Where's the justice in that from a God that is completely just? You know, this is a thousand years before Jesus. This is four, three or four hundred years before Isaiah, which we've been reading. And God who is supposedly... Uh, supposed to be perfectly just and righteous, has essentially just completely brushed over this man's adultery and murder. I mean, put yourself in the position of, um, if you were a relative of Uriah, like his mother or his brother, do you think you would be praising God and his anointed King David for their justice and their righteousness? I doubt it. 
And you know, this is just one example of countless times throughout history that God has not treated people as they deserve. And as it says in the Isaiah 48 passage we just read, he's restrained himself for our benefit. You know, it's, it's human nature to not get upset or angry when injustice kind of favours us, isn't it? Here's a little survey. I wonder, pop your hand up if you would be uh, angry that you didn't get a speeding fine when you knew you were speeding. I don't see too many hands around the place. Yeah, it's unlikely, isn't it? But God, if God is to be perfectly just and righteous, maybe you're beginning to see the problem. Because if his character is perfect and without any fault, then how can it possibly stand that God would turn a blind eye, so to speak, to the vast sins and disobedience and failures and rebellion of of David, or even just David, of us and of all his people? You know, God cannot compromise his own character. He can't do it. He cannot compromise his name or his glory because he is God. And if he did, he wouldn't be God. So there are in some ways two possible options in dealing with this problem. There's really only one completely congruent with the character and the name and the glory of God. I mean, firstly, he could have just smite us all and be done with it. You know, everyone forever under the wrath of God, eternal destruction and God's justice is maintained. But that's not how the story goes, is it? Because do you know what else we see in Scripture and from God's revelation of himself to us is that God is love. God is love. So thankfully for us, because of his very character, because of his his commitment to himself and to his own glory and to his own name, that is not the way the story goes, is it? There's a really important um, passage in Romans chapter 3 in the New Testament when Paul writes this. So it's three, Romans 3, 23 to 25. He writes, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen. We've all sinned. None of us are perfect, are we? We've all done the wrong thing at some point in our life. We all have thoughts that aren't congruent with what we know to be right and true. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But read on. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25. God presented Him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. That's big. What this means is that the foundation of our hope, you know, the foundation of his love for us is not that we are great, it's not that we are lovely, it's not that we are worthy, it's not that we are even deserving, it's that God is passionately committed to his own glory and zeal for his own name, which is why Jesus willfully and volitionally went to the cross. Yes, to take our sin and our shame upon himself, that we could be adopted as sons when we put our trust in him. But even deeper than that, It was to vindicate his own name for his own glory. I like the way Ray Ortland puts it. He writes that God's commitment to God is his assurance to us. And if that assurance doesn't melt your heart, then it doesn't belong to you. But if that assurance ignites you with a flame of hope, then he has set you apart for himself forever. Um, We're going to 
finish up soon and move into communion. But before we do, I just want to give us a few implications of this deeper truth. Because while it might seem strange, um, I'm not sure if this is a new thing for you guys to hear, but it can seem strange at first and, and in, a, in a weird way almost unloving, but um, it's actually incredibly freeing and good news. Incredibly freeing and good news. Firstly, because God is passionately for himself, we can be sure of his love beyond a shadow of doubt. You know, since God will never fail to be God, his love for us as well is never failing and unchanging. You know, his love for you isn't based on your performance. It's not based on your ability to pray enough or work hard enough or change your behavior uh, and become what your idea of a good person is. You know, his love is rooted in his very character, which unlike our feelings, come and go, don't they? You know, unlike our stuff gets broken, thrown away eventually, unlike our efforts, they wax and they wane, don't they? Unlike our achievements, however great, will one day be forgotten. And unlike our human relationships, can quite easily be strained and messy. You know that God's love is rooted for us, is rooted in himself, is really good news, because there, be, there could be no stronger foundation. Secondly, and this really kind of um, comes out of the first point, but secondly, we are completely secure and free in our identity in Jesus. Completely secure and free in our identity in Jesus. See, many people, when we all feel the pull towards this, don't we, operate out of a deep place of insecurity. You know, needing to prove or make a name for themselves. Insecurity drive, insecurities drive people into all sorts of places and ways of living. I mean, some people sleep around. Uh, they idolise their bodies and it's out of this insecurity that they the need they have to feel loved and accepted. Some people work their way up the career ladder and they might trample on all sorts of people who they might have called friends to get there in order to see and feel that they are successful, that they are powerful. Other people turn to, to drink or to drugs or to escapism for pleasure and for comfort. And sometimes people as well, they bend and they change themselves or they manipulate others out of this need for approval and feeling valued. There is a constant scramble in this world we live in and a relentless fight to prove ourselves. And as Solomon points out in Ecclesiastes 4, much can be achieved in this life doing that, however destructive to oneself or to others. Much can be achieved by... Um, operating out of those insecurities, out of this need to feel loved and accepted and valued and approved. But, but, when our identity, when our soul is secure in the unchanging reality of God's character, then we can actually be at rest. We can be free from that sort of struggle. We don't need to try to prove ourselves or spend our lives trying to make a name for ourselves because our destiny, our acceptance is secure in God and we no longer need to envy, we no longer need to compete, we don't need to compare anymore 
We don't need to covet anymore. We can be at rest, completely at rest in our identity in Jesus. I love the way uh, Tim Keller puts it. He writes, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And understanding that the foundation of this love is the very character, the very nature of who God is and his passion for his own glory actually frees us more than anything ever could because it's a firmer foundation than anything could ever be. At the end of chapter 48, if you're following along, it's verse 17. Isaiah writes this. He says, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you for your benefit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. You know, like the Israelites, like the Jews at the time, you know, we all have a certain degree of agency, free will, don't we? And we can choose to not operate out of that place of faith and, and that place of our security and our confidence being in our identity in Jesus. You know, it doesn't change or diminish God's love for us, uh, but it might be that we constantly miss what He is doing in and around us. And rather than have joy in all circumstances and souls at rest in our identity in God, it is possible to still live our lives in a way that is restless, that is anxious and constantly trying to satisfy ourselves on what doesn't satisfy, can't satisfy us. We're going to um, take communion now. Communion is where we remember what can truly feed and nourish and satisfy our souls. You know, 600 years on from uh, Isaiah, hinting at the new and hidden things, as we read about earlier, God, um, Jesus sat in an upstairs room and he sat with his 12 disciples and he began a new covenant between God and humanity. He broke the bread and he gave it to them saying, take this, eat, this is my body. He then took the cup and when he had given thanks, he said to them, drink it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You know, this is what we're going to do, celebrate now. That there is complete peace between us and God, not because we worked for it, not because we did anything to earn it, but because Jesus' body and his blood was broken on that cross for the glory of God and for the reconciliation of all people who would put their trust in his finished work in securing our salvation. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.